Hallelujah. What a tremendous testimony. Uh, we so appreciate that. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah tonight. Nehemiah chapter 1. I have. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I've been uh, kind of just moving through these uh, stories, these books in the Bible again and just, amen. You know, I, I, I have Bibles and I read through the whole Bible. I mark my Bible up and I come back and reread these things. And there's always truths that just leap out of me that I was like, how come I never noticed this before? And so um, I want to speak to one tonight and help you on a Wednesday night at a midweek service and believe God to minister. Nehemiah chapter one. Back in 2010, uh, there was uh, a disaster that took place out in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, one of the largest deep water oil rigs, oil platforms in the world, the Horizon, exploded, and uh, 11 men were killed in the explosion, incredible amount of oil poured into the Gulf, and this, uh, at the time, they did not know how far-reaching this ecological crisis was going to reach. Quickly, one of the things that happened was how the owner of this platform, British Petroleum, mishandled the crisis, particularly their CEO, a man named Tony Hayward. When he was on vacation when this happened and when he was contacted uh, and said, look, uh, you, you know, this has happened, he got upset. He did not want to end his vacation. And finally, under pressure, he decided to return so he could manage the crisis um, and immediately upon returning, uh, he began to say without knowing any facts that this was not their fault. They began to point fingers uh, at some of the other uh, businesses that are associated with them. Um, and finally, one day in a bit of frustration uh, with the media, said the words, uh, all he wanted was to have his life back. This was after 11 men have been killed, untold damage is being done. All this man wanted was his life back. Shortly after that, he was fired. And how Tony Hayward handled that crisis today is taught in business schools what not to do in a crisis. Because how you and I handle a crisis, I got a big echo up here, Greg. How you and I handle a crisis is critical tonight. Because I don't want to bum you out, but you are going to have a few of your own. I want to preach a sermon tonight that I've entitled Crisis Management. I want you to see this with me in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, he says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hashaliah. It came to pass in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the citadel, 
And Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah, and I asked him concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments, please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you, have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances which you command your servant Moses. Remember, I pray the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations, but if you return to me, and keep thy commandments, and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling place for my name. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Verse 11, O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name, let your servant prosper this day, I pray. Grant him mercy in the sight of this man. For I was the king's cupbearer, crisis management. Father, help us tonight. Oh, God, give us direction. Show us what to do. I pray especially for men and women that are here tonight and their lives are in crisis. Speak to them. Give them a plan of action. In Jesus' name. Let's first of all talk about crisis tonight, because here we have Nehemiah, and his life is about to undergo a radical change. He is a courtesan in the palace of the king at Shushan, and as he is serving there, he is going to be moved powerfully, and by the end of the next chapter, this man is going to be on his way to restore the city of Jerusalem. It is a very powerful book. The book of Nehemiah is a very inspirational book, and it's a powerful portrait of how God can take something that is in ruins and turn it around and restore it to its former glory. And I think that's a wonderful promise because many of us can identify with the city of Jerusalem because just like that city, our gates have been burned with fire, amen. Uh, our lives were a complete mess, uh, and thank God God didn't give up on us, uh, but he said, I'm going to go, and I'm going to restore you, and I'm going to bring you back to a place of glory and honor, amen. And that is the wonderful image that is in this text, uh, and thank God for that. Uh, but I want you to see something tonight, and that is that this entire story of Nehemiah begins uh, as a crisis, the Bible says um, that uh, uh, one of uh, uh, Nehemiah's cousins um, returns from Jerusalem. Uh, he's back in the capital. Um, Nehemiah sees him and simply asks a question. 
how are things going in Jerusalem? Uh, and how are those people uh, who have already gone there, uh, uh, how are they faring? Amen. You know, how many know sometimes when you ask people how they're doing, they might actually tell you? And so he begins to just simply tell Nehemiah of the great crisis that's taking place uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, the survivors uh, who are left from the captivity are there in great distress and reproach. Uh, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned with fire. Uh, and the Bible says that when Nehemiah heard these words, uh, he sat down and wept and mourned for many days. Nehemiah wasn't prepared for this. He was expecting, how are they doing? Oh, they're doing okay. That's all he was expecting. But instead, he is brought into a crisis because he realizes there is a humanitarian crisis going on in Jerusalem. It's as if we would hear about maybe an earthquake in Haiti, or we heard about the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. Well, he has heard about this horrible crisis, uh, this city that's in ruins, it's indefensible, it's people who are desperate, uh, and now the crisis uh, has uh, come home. I think this is worth our consideration uh, because every one of us is going to have our crisis moments. There's not a man or woman here who is not one day going to experience uh, news and information that is going to plunge you uh, into the kind of despair that we see in Nehemiah. The Bible says that he wept, uh, he began to pray, he began to fast. Now, by definition, a crisis is considered a condition of instability or danger, a dramatic emotional or circumstantial upheaval in a person's life, um, and we are all going to have those. What I am referring to tonight is not your usual run-of-the-mill trial. I'm not talking about that you've had a bad day uh, because you have a flat tire or you got stuck in traffic, um, but I'm talking about the sudden event, the unplanned situation, something you were not prepared for. Back in October of 1962, uh, there was a very important event that happened in the world other than me being born. But there was something else that happened. It actually happened in between when I was born and when my wife was born. The world uh, almost came uh, to an end as we know it. It's called the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, this is considered one of the great crisis events of America's uh, existence. Uh, it was during the middle of the Cold War, um, and Cuba, which was an enemy of America up until today, I suppose, um, was uh, uh, Fidel Castro. He had gone in. He, first, he was a hero, um, threw off um, the uh, uh, domination and dictatorship of a, a man named Fulgencio Batista, and uh, no sooner did he take power of Cuba than he declared that he was a Marxist and he was a communist. He aligned himself with the Soviet Union against the United States. Um, and in the middle of all the, uh, the push and pull of, uh, of a relationship between the United States and Russia, or Soviet Union, the Soviet Union sent nuclear missiles to Cuba. Cuba is 90 miles away from the United States. And they set up these nuclear missiles, and this was going to be a game changer. The world was going to be different if there was now nuclear capability to launch against the United States from only 90 miles away, 
John F. Kennedy was president, and for 13 days, the world was on edge as President Kennedy stood up and demanded that these missiles be brought down, and if they wouldn't be brought down, that it might trigger World War III, and there was, it was a very tense situation. It was called the Cuban Missile Crisis because they were plunged into this. They woke up one day, satellite photos revealed this, and everything changed. That's what I'm talking about tonight. I'm talking about when something happens and everything changes. It's a phone call that you picked up, and once you got that, it's all different now. Everything changes. As a pastor, I have been with people. I still remember very vividly certain times answering my phone and hearing words, and from that moment, everything changed. That's what I'm talking about, being plunged into these desperate situations. Job had a crisis. He woke up one day, and by the end of the day, he has lost his children, he has lost his wealth, and he has lost his health. People that are told it's cancer. Israel is ambushed by Amalek, a people who had not fought a war in 400 years. Uh, and for the first time in 10 generations, they're actually engaged uh, in battle. And they're totally unprepared. Uh, and they are defeated. You know, sometimes you can go through a crisis of faith. Where, you know, here you are, you're serving God, you think you've got it all figured out, you're living for God, and then something happens, or a series of events, and next thing you know, you're starting to wonder, what do I believe? Do I really believe this? Is this simply cultural? About, was I raised? Is this simply my parents' religion? You can go through a crisis of faith. The Bible tells us about one of the disciples named Thomas. He's sometimes called Doubting Thomas. Because Thomas went through a crisis of faith. Because the, the circumstances, particularly surrounding the crucifixion, overwhelmed him. When he saw Jesus crucified, uh, unlike uh, the centurion that saw it and said, this is the son of God, the centurion, uh, Thomas said, I doubt it very seriously. And the next time the disciples gathered, Thomas didn't bother gathering. Why? Because he's having a crisis of faith. And may I say something tonight to this congregation? Sometimes when people aren't coming to church, it's because they're having their own crisis of faith. That Thomas didn't come. And the disciples went looking for him and told them how Jesus had risen and he had appeared to them in the upper room. And the Bible says that Thomas' response was unless I see the nail print in his hand and I put my hand into his side. Thomas was there on Calvary. He had seen the crucifixion. He had seen the nails driven into his hand. He had seen the spear thrust into his side. And so he says, listen, uh, you know, you're not going to get, you're not going to fool me. You're not going to bring some imposter. If he really rose from the dead, uh, then the marks are going to be on him. Uh, and he says, and unless I see it with my own eyes, I am not going to believe a crisis of faith. It is quite possible tonight you can have your own crisis of faith. Because you see things that are so upsetting, you start doubting. You know, I might throw this in for free tonight. In this story, it was actually a judgment. 
Jerusalem was destroyed because they would not heed the warnings, particularly of the prophet Jeremiah. So this city had been destroyed, and, and as it's destroyed, uh, the crisis that Nehemiah is going through is actually the crisis of seeing the consequences come to pass. I want to tell you tonight, you want a crisis. Sometimes a crisis is nothing more than sin catching up with you. Simply ignoring and ignoring and not dealing with things. Uh, you sow a seed, uh, and now that seed is reaping. Uh, you have sown to the wind, and now you're reaping the whirlwind. Uh, and now you're plunged into a crisis, uh, and that crisis is a lot of times a result of our own making. And now things are out of control, and we thought, well, I, didn't, I knew it would be bad, but I didn't think it would be this bad. Now, all of a sudden... Just like in our story, we are in a crisis. I want to talk to you tonight about step one, what to do when you're in a crisis. There's an old illustration. I want to use it. They said that when policemen would, uh, were preparing to go and uh, begin to serve on the police force, that they would give them all this question, I think, in London. And the question was this, you're on patrol. When an explosion occurs on the next street, upon investigation, you find a large hole. An overturned van laying nearby. Inside the van, there's a strong smell of alcohol. Both occupants, a man and a woman, are injured. You know he is an unlicensed driver, and the passenger is the wife of your inspector. A motorist stops to offer assistance, and you recognize him as a felon wanted for armed robbery. Suddenly, a man runs out of a nearby house shouting, his wife is expecting a baby, and the shock of the explosion has brought the birth imminent. At that moment, you hear someone crying for help, having been blown into an adjacent channel by the explosion, and he cannot swim. Describe in a few words what you would do. One officer wrote on his test, Remove my uniform and mingle with the crowd. <laughs> because, listen, what do you do when you're in the crisis? Now, there's a lesson about progression. This is true about NFL quarterbacks, amen. I'm not a... Uh, I'm still a little bitter about this year's season, but uh, I, this still works. You know, what they say causes a quarterback to be a great quarterback in the NFL. It is not arm strength. It's not running ability. But they say what separates the very best quarterbacks in the NFL from all the rest is decision-making. It is the ability to get that football and in less than four seconds be able to make the right decision and what is the best plan and where to throw the football. They call this going through progressions. In other words, these, uh, all these uh, receivers, take, he gets the ball, the receivers run, and then that quarterback goes through these progressions. He has his primary receiver, his secondary receiver, his third and his fourth, uh, and in less than four seconds, as five or six 300-pound men want to crush him, he gets that ball, uh, 
and uh, the top uh, uh, quarterbacks in the NFL, uh, uh, they, they are able to look for their primary. He's covered. Next guy's covered. Next guy. And, and do all that in less than four seconds' time. Unlike some quarterbacks I know who just close their eyes and throw the ball. In other words, when crisis comes, you have to know what to do first. You feel like that in life. You feel like you're back there and your linemen are all about five foot one, uh, 65 pounds, uh, and here comes these NFL monsters, and you're here, you, and you've got you've to know, what do I do first? What do I do when I get the phone call? What do I do when my life or my family or my finances are spinning out of control? I want you to see what Nehemiah did first. Nehemiah chose to repent. Looked at this verse again. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I pray before you now day and night for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you, both my father's house and I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. First thing he did. This was not the second thing he did. It wasn't the third thing he did. It was the immediate response to being plunged into this crisis. Uh, I have sinned. My father's house has sinned. Israel has sinned. Now think about this tonight, church, because Nehemiah was a good man. We're not talking about Nehemiah that was out smoking some dope when he found this out. We're not talking about Nehemiah backslidden and doing it. No, no, no. He was a faithful, godly, good man. And yet the way he responded when he heard about this was to get on his knees and begin to say, God, is this start with me? What is going on with me? God, if I've done something wrong, if I'm not right, forgive me. Says something about a man who is willing to check himself first and take personal responsibility. Let me ask you a question tonight. Would your marriage be any better if you took this approach? Instead of talking about what he's like or what she's like. If your response was to get down and say, oh God, forgive me. I have sinned. I have acted very corruptly. Would it change your marriage tonight? When you're in a financial crisis, God, have I been unrighteous with money? Is that how this started? We're talking about a powerful principle tonight. 
that when a man in, in these days looked at a mess, what appeared to be unsolvable. And you know what, I, I can't solve. Sometimes, man, you, your life can be so complicated, you don't know how to deal with it. You don't know what strand to pull. You don't know how you can lay this thing out. Their response was just to fall on their knees and say, God, I repent. I was thinking about Ezra. Because Ezra was Nehemiah's predecessor. Story goes that when the command was given to restore the temple, it was about 90 years prior to Nehemiah. And a man named Jerubabel was the first one to go and acted, and he began to rebuild the temple. And then later on, Ezra went, and then eventually Nehemiah went to rebuild the city. And when you read the book of Ezra, they had, he was going through a very similar thing a few years earlier. People were compromising, they were intermarrying, and all kinds of things. And I want you to listen to what Ezra said. Ezra goes there. He's a good man. He's a godly man. And when the crisis hits, it says these words, when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe. I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard and sat down astonished. At the evening sacrifice, I arose from my fasting and having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees, spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. And he was a good man. Nehemiah and Ezra both could have made the case that I'm not the one doing this. They're doing this. I'm not messing. I'm not, I'm not compromising. I'm a good man. But somehow their approach to crisis was God help me. I preached a while back somewhere. And I mean to tell you that in this, very interesting in this place because I preached, it's an older church, ministered. When the altar call came, I felt the resistance. A handful of people came forward to pray. Listen, it wasn't about a preacher's ego. I could feel that. And I thought, well, what, what is this? What's going on here? That opportunity, that season, when it's time to respond, it was, it was just absent. This willingness, and it wasn't like people aren't going through things, but somehow this willingness to say, God, I repent. God, I don't know what to do, but God, let me start with me. Remember in the Last Supper when, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, and every one of these men went around the table saying, Lord, is it I? can lose that. You know what Nehemiah didn't do? He didn't point fingers. He didn't blame somebody else. Well, the reason why, well, it's, you know, it's their fault. How easy it is in crisis to find someone to blame. This man, Tony Hayward, from the British Petroleum, 
turns so many people off is immediately it's not us. Some of our vendors really turns people off politically when the leaders immediately throw somebody else under the bus. You don't hear that at all. And you know what's amazing is Nehemiah could have blamed others. Nehemiah could have made a very good argument why he is not to blame. Somehow this transcended that. And if he would know what to do, he knew it had to start with a willingness to repent. There's an old Jewish proverb that says, repentance is a key that opens any lock. He decided, you know what? I'm just going to get on my face. Say, God, forgive me. Forgive my father's house. Forgive my people. No excuse. No pointing the finger. We're in crisis here. It starts with me. Let me close tonight and we'll pray. I want you to consider the possibility tonight. And that is that crisis is a game changer. You know what's interesting? When I was uh, working on this sermon... I found out something interesting, and that is that the word crisis, in its original Latin form, means to decide or to judge. And that the word picture is that a situation arises that requires you to have to make a decision. So today, when we think of crisis, we think about the sudden uh, uh, event uh, that has put us in an upheaval, but the actual word means that uh, life is making me choose. That I'm just kind of moving along with my life, doing what I'm going to do, but when a crisis comes, uh, I am now forced to make a choice, to have to decide, to have to render a judgment that when a crisis comes, there's a possibility for that to change your life. It is a possibility that things can actually improve. I remember many years ago being told that the word crisis in Chinese, you know, in Chinese characters, they, 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 these characters are actually just drawings of different words or different meanings. And the word crisis in Chinese is actually two Characters, one means danger and the other one means opportunity. And every crisis is actually an opportunity. It is a door that is opening. In a very cynical way, Rahm Emanuel, the mayor of Chicago, said, never waste a crisis. Because when we go into a crisis, we have the opportunity to decide and make a choice. I believe in crisis conversion tonight. I know that lots of people come and give their life to Jesus because things are not going good, but because things are going wrong. Lots of people are like the woman with the issue of blood, and they are in the middle of a physical crisis, and they come, and they would have never come otherwise. But because of a crisis, they come and they bow before Jesus, and he touches them. Many of us were saved. Maybe it was a failing marriage. Maybe it was an addiction uh, a substance abuse problem. Maybe it was some sort of mental or emotional distress. Uh, 
Maybe it was some other area of your life. Uh, but in the middle of your crisis, uh, in that desperate moment, not even realizing, maybe never heard of Nehemiah, you bowed your knee like him and said, oh, God, I repent. And when you did that, God opened a door. And he turned your life around, and maybe it would have never happened if not for the crisis. Psalms 119 says, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, I have kept your word. The crisis of life became a game changer, turned everything around. See, here you are tonight, and you're in the middle of your crisis. It might open a door. It changed Nehemiah's life. Because the crisis took this career civil servant, the man with the cush job working in the palace. The Bible says out of this crisis, God begins to deal with him. And Nehemiah says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to leave the palace. And I am going to go to Jerusalem. And I'm going to make a difference. And his entire life and career changes because he is now confronted with a crisis. It becomes the game changer. It becomes the dangerous opportunity. And today we talk about Nehemiah. We admire him. His life is a subject of leadership books because the man took a crisis and he began by falling on his knees. And it all turned around for him. I was in uh, Kenya back in... Uh, August, ministering there for uh, Patrick Nehemiah and his family. It's a wonderful revival. The Nehemiahs are the leaders there in Kenya. They have a powerful conference and churches that cover East Africa. And Patrick's wife, a very good lady, she, she uh, cooked uh, for me and uh, had a great uh, meal there. But her testimony is interesting because... What happened is Patrick wanted to preach, but his wife didn't want to go get sent out. Let me say it again. He wanted to preach, but she didn't want to. She's fighting him. She's resisting him to preach. What happened is our sister had a crisis. She worked in downtown Nairobi, Kenya, Back in 1998, while Patrick and her are having these discussions and she wants, he wants to preach and she doesn't want to, she doesn't want to be a pastor's wife, she's walking in downtown Nairobi about a block away from the American embassy when it is blown up by terrorists. When it blew her up, she told me, she said, Pastor, I just fainted on the ground. When I woke, I'm covered in dust and ash fire, there are people moaning, I think over 100 people were killed. And she said, the first thing that came to my mind is I'm lying there covered in dust, my ears are, I can't hear. The first thing in my mind is, all right, Lord, I will be a pastor's wife. And it became a game changer. I am not wishing that on you tonight. 
somehow this crisis grabbed a hold of this man who had no intention of going. By the next chapter, he's on his way because of a crisis, an opportunity. Let's bow our heads.